Uh, welcome back to the Hit Factor podcast. Today we have guest Travis Tomasi. A uh, quick introduction here. He is a world and national USPSA at IPSC champion and former member of the Army AMU, uh, instructor, Mythbuster, and of course, he is the parent of Gus the Bulldog. Travis, could you tell us about the uh, companies you currently work with and represent? Yes, thank you for that great intro, by the way. I love to hear Gus's name. <laughs> so I've got uh, Best Targets, make amazing steel targets, and a uh, great bunch of guys. Um, Hunters HD Gold, they provide my my eye protection, incredible clarity. Um, just, I don't know how I lived without them, to be honest. And uh, Leif at GX Products, built my holster, and just really good products and really good people. Awesome. So... Sasquatch didn't introduce me, but Jeremy is also on the podcast. Uh, well, I went in order of importance. That's that's <laughs> leaving me out is the is the correct order there. Um, also, one thing that the Sasquatch left out is not only is Travis all of those other things, but he is also definitely like the nicest guy in shooting. Like that, like there is like that is his title like in perpetuity. I don't think anybody can take his title away from him. Uh, so like, how do you, that's my first question, Travis, is how do you, like you're on the range, you're competing for nationals and world titles and all the frustration. And then like some, some dude just comes up and wants to talk to you and you just turn around and like, you're just the nicest person in the world where I'm like, Hey, get away from me. I'm trying to compete here. I don't understand how you do that. Can you give us a little insight into that? <laughs> Well, that's actually a really good, really good question, Jeremy. And I will tell you that um, it's sort of my my inherent personality, and it's just what I naturally do. But I'll tell you, it's not not the best, most uh, performance enha enhancing way to go. I'll tell you. Yeah, I could see that being a being a bit of a distraction. Absolutely, it is. But um, I don't know. I just I feel like I never had a choice. It's just kind of the way I am. Well, that's. That's good. I'm glad there's some. I'm glad there are people out there like that, because uh, I don't. I don't quite fit that description, but that's okay. Um, the other important question is: Yes, you are the dad to Gus. Okay, so we need to know a little bit more about before we get into shooting. We need to know more about Gus. Gus is a bulldog, correct? Yes, sir. A lilac bulldog. He's a. He's a. Uh, he's got three colors. He's got lilac, white, and like a caramel color. Which makes him pretty rare, but an English awesome. bulldog, yeah. So, how old is Gus? So he's coming up on three years. It's gosh, it's gone by so fast. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. So Gus and my, I have a German Shepherd whose name is Kenobi, and they are probably like almost the exact same age. Then he'll be three in February this year. So man, we're past the puppy stage almost, which is good. Yeah, ex right. They're like um, they're most like an adult dog and starting to behave better. And yeah, so fast. You know, I wish wish we had more time with them. Is oh, it, absolutely. It, Izzy's like a senior citizen, like Boomer. She's like ten. So Izzy's also not like you know. Gus is a bulldog. Kenobi's a German Shepherd. Izzy's like a poof. No, she's a, she's a cockapoo. It's a very manly dog. A cockapoo. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. So now we got the important stuff out of the way. Um, 
how did you get started? We know we, I mean, I think most people know that you were in the AMU and all that, but what did your shooting look like before you joined the AMU? Yeah. So, um, I was, you know, I started in 95. Wow. It seems like a long time now, but, uh, I was doing, I was playing soccer and team sports and I kind of got, I kind of got frustrated with the fact that, um, no matter how hard, you know, how much effort and how much you work, you're really dependent on like 10 or 11 other guys. And my dad had been shooting Ipsic since the eighties. And he said, okay. oh, yeah, yeah. And he, you know, like back when they were shooting 45 single stacks, Ernie Hill, like leather holster. Yeah. You know, iron, iron sights were all the rage. And, um, and he invited me out and immediately first, the, the first match, I was just completely uh, obsessed with, getting better at this. And I wanted to make it my really make it my career. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I got, you know, I, I was going to college at the time and working, uh, cleaning cars at a dealership, like six days a week and uh, almost immediately started dry firing four hours a day, at least a minimum every day. And not, uh-huh. yeah, it wasn't hard. It was like, I was complete. It was like almost like an irrational obsession. You know, I just, it, it was it, it was like overnight. It's like yeah, this is what I want to do, and I want to be an Ipsic World Champion. That was that was my goal from the beginning, and uh, everything that I did was to, towards that end, including joining the Army, active duty infantry at 29 years old, which is, you know, is they called me Grandpa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of late, really. That brings up uh, an interesting thing. So. I don't know. In that time frame, did the AMU generally recruit younger people like they seem to do nowadays? Were were you kind of a, an outlier coming in late to the game? Yes. Yeah, you're right. I was an outlier. And, and interestingly enough, um, so I took to the sport really quick and I made Grandmaster in like nine months from never having shot before. And, you know, it was a paper GM, of course. Um, but Within two years, I was on the super squad, 97 limited nationals in Virginia. And the coach of the AMU, he approached me. His name was Ray. And he said, you know, I've been watching you shoot, and I'd like to offer you a a slot on the team. And guys, oh, I wish I would have done it then. Uh, But I was was so – I really – so not only did I want to win the Ipswich World Championship, but I wanted to be – represent a major manufacturer like the guys that were doing when i was coming up you had the big three the big three were todd jarrett rob latham and jerry barnhart the burner yeah it right and these guys they i mean they they influenced me in a lot of ways and i i i watched them and i studied them really hard we didn't have all the the uh, forums and the youtube uh channels and all this massive amount of information that you can access so easily back then you had like lenny mcgill's national tapes maybe some american handgunner articles that's an actual magazine right the kind you buy at the store yeah (laughs) (laughs) and that and that was about it so when when the anu approached me then in 97 i was like i really appreciate it i you know i took his card and it meant a lot to me but i was like you know i want to be on team springfield or you know team colt or team pair or something like that and so Yeah, that's when they first did, and, and I was younger then. I looked, I looked young back then. So um, he maybe thought I was one of those, you know, eighteen or nineteen year olds. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So uh, consequently, guys, I did not join the army then. I kept kept working at it on my own, and um, boy, I went through a, through a lot of ebbs and flows in my career. Uh, let's see, I was um, fourth, I think, in nationals behind the big three, and that was maybe ninety nine or two thousand. And I was placing top five at open and limited nationals, but not really winning, winning areas and things like that. And I was running, I had my own uh, detail shop at this time. So I would spend, you know, I, I lived maybe 10 miles from Microsoft. So I'd go and pick up uh, cars there at the campus and I would do a complete detail, like paint correction, the engine, the interior, everything. And I would take it back. But, you know, middle of the day, I would go down to the range and shoot, pick up my brass, go put it, put it in the tumbler get that car done and then try to get back out there and do like two a days, you know, whatever I could, all the money from detailing went to eating and shooting. That was it. Wow. So early on like that, I mean, training that much, uh, people love this question. I, I mean, round count, did you, were you keeping track of how many rounds you were shooting in a year? Any, any guesses what you were shooting? Like when you were trying to, to get to that top level like that? I absolutely did. Cause I was using a five fifty. Oh gosh. <laughs> Okay. And, um, I would say that around that time, like when I, when, um, you know, like when I was placing fourth, I, I would say that I was loading about 45,000 to 50,000 rounds on that. Okay. Yeah. So the question is how often were you switching to your left arm to keep them the same size? <laughs> I should have thought of that. I should have thought of that. I'm surprised that you can get like, you know, tendonitis or something, but being young, you know, your body can take it, but that is a good question. Yeah. That's a lot of rounds to manually index on a 550. That's, that's a lot. I got really tired of it. That was another, another reason I wanted to join the army guys. We can get into that, but you don't load ammo there. <laughs> okay, so the, so I take it, it was it was a few years later than you you decide okay enough with this detailing stuff and loading on a five fifty and you did accept the invite to the the AMU. Did you call the guy up or did he call you again? Was he pestering you all the time? Hey, come join us. Okay. Oh well, this is interesting. So how the way this went down, I was I was lucky enough to to make the uh, open national team for the two thousand two World Shoot in South Africa. And the team was uh, Jerry Barnhart was the captain, Todd Jarrett, Max Michelle, and myself. And, uh, you know, I'd seen Max at some matches. I didn't really know him very well. Uh, he was a young guy. You could tell he was really driven. And he'd come up and ask me some questions and real good questions. But he said, you know, hey, you know, we're on the team together. Why don't you come down to four? I was, oh, by the way, guys, I was living in Washington State. It's where I came up. Um, so, you know, I'm on the other side of the country. And Max says, why don't you come down and spend a week at the AMU? We'll practice and get ready for the world shoot in South Africa. So I'm like, man, that sounds awesome. I mean, that's awesome. What, a, what an opportunity. Yeah. And, um, and so I went down there and um, the, co the same coach was there. And he said, um, you know, I don't have a slot for you now. Ju uh, Julie might be leaving. We'll keep an eye on it, but there's this other there's this other guy. He's 17, and he's he's like a master class open shooter. And we're looking at take you know we're looking at taking him. And I said, oh, you know, okay, that's that's fair. You know, I had a shot, but I, I want the next one. Whatever it takes, I want the next one, and I'll wait. Um, so I think it took like maybe a year, 
after that that uh he finally called me up or i think he told max to tell me he's like okay you know are you ready it's time to um we'll get you a letter of acceptance and you go down to the what is it the recruiting station yeah um yep and and sign up and uh sign your life away and uh, <laughs> if you're really lucky after basic and uh ait your infantry, infantry training and all that then you will maybe you'll end up at the amu hopefully fingers crossed <laughs> okay so that that does bring up one thing I've always kind of wondered about because the AMU guys do get recruited, but they still got to do normal basic just like everybody else, correct? Correct. Exactly. You pick an MOS and, um, and you know, that's your job specialty, basically. And a lot of us would choose infantry because it's there at Fort Benning. So you would, you would ship out and you'd go do all your training at Fort Benning. The AMU is there. Supposedly, they could kind of keep an eye on you, make sure you're doing okay. I, I didn't have that luxury. It was a different time. Um, but then you you graduate, and if all the paperwork is right, <laughs> mine wasn't. <laughs> I was headed to Korea. And then it eventually got squared away, and um, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was in the AMU. Like That was another one of my dreams. I was like, this is the only way that uh, – or the most effective way for me to get where I want to go. Yeah. Yeah, there I was. Okay, so in the AMU, I mean, I think there's this conception out there that people have that, that people go in the AMU and then the Army just pays for them to just train all day, every day, and they just ship them buckets of ammo. Uh, you know, they're shooting quarter million rounds a year, and that's all they got to do. Is that how far – is that reality, or is it a little different than that? So it is, it is based upon the leadership of the unit, the commander, um, okay. the lieutenant colonel, he's in charge, really. He'll have a mission statement. So I can tell you that my time in the AMU, which was um, maybe eight years, um, it went in the beginning from the mission statement being that our soldiers will win in national and international competition. And in that respect, it was exact almost exactly like you, you, you talked about. Um, and, and I'll get into that, but then it changed to more, um, as the wars ramped up, it changed into more to training the force. So then, yeah, my job became more instructing and which was awesome. I loved it. Um, uh, but it definitely changed and it was, it was a lot less like the AMU than you would think it is. And maybe more less than it is now, which I heard they're shooting a lot more again. Okay. Yeah. So when I, when I got there, it was basically go do your physical training in the morning, like army style PT. Then you uh -huh. go head over to the uh, ammo bunker. It's guys, this is like, can you imagine walking into this building and you go over to the action shooting, um, racks and you've got nine mil. Oh, Atlanta arms loaded. Okay. Nine mil, 40 cal, 38 super comp. You have steel challenge loads. You have IPSC loads. You have USPSA power factor. All of this, you go pick it. You sign it out. I would take a thousand rounds, and then um, I was a private. I, I was living in the barracks, so I couldn't have my guns with me. I'd have to go to the uh, the the, um, the arms room, call it right, and go and sign out my gun. And then I would head to the range, and it would be at the time it was uh, myself and Max Michelle. And um, basically, we would train all day. Wow. Yes. We would take a lunch break and we'd come back. And it was like what you would, 
it, it was incredible. I think the first year there, I probably shot a maybe eighty or eighty five thousand. Uh, it was hard to it was hard to for me to quantify. I I wish I would have been like logging it all, but it was it was amazing. Um, I'll tell you, go guys, when you're doing that and you have the access to all that ammo, you really got to be careful to burn out. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, I mean, like, I mean, you had a pretty unique opportunity, not just in the access to ammo and training that, but you got to train, you and Max Michelle got to train together. And that's, that's not, that's pretty unique to have, have two competitors of that skill level. They get to train together all the time. That's probably almost unique specifically to the AMU. I don't, I don't know many other competitors across the country. Most people are training in isolation. So how do you feel that contributed to your career? Maybe even Max's career. To, well, I, mean, I don't know if you can speak to Max's career, but uh, how, how do you feel like that contributed to your career? Just that that time being able to train every day with another top level competitor. Oh, you're right on top of it. You nailed it. That was huge. And, and we've talked about it quite a bit. Um, it was it was instrumental in a lot of different aspects. And so when I first got there, I was shooting open. And Max was shooting open as, you know, he's phenomenal. And so along those lines, guys, we're shooting the same gun, which brings about a very competitive, you know, nature to it. Right. And we're going to these matches and we're kind of, it's very competitive, very competitive. And we got a new, we got a new team leader who said, you know, Tomasi, you shot limited before you came in. Max is on the path to being the greatest open shooter. So we're going to have you shoot limited. And it was, it was a really good setup then because we no longer, it was more, it wasn't as competitive. It was more help out your buddy. Yeah. Right. And so the goal was, and you said, look, we're going to send you to these matches. You went open, you went limited and we can sweep these two big divisions. They were pretty big at the time. And um, that'll work better for the army as well. And suppose you guys fighting it out for the top open spot. And then from there, it really, it really was, um, oh man. Yeah. What a unique opportunity. Like every day, an an example, a technique example would be guys. So when you're, when you're going up against somebody that good and it's coming down to hundreds of a second, Mm -hmm. uh, your, your technique starts to almost morph in ways that maybe you didn't do it before. And one of them is the width of the stance. So I used to shoot maybe shoulder width, more of an ath- the, the, the uh, average athletic stance, right? That you're taught when you're, when you're doing some athletics. And I would say after a few months, both of Max and I were, you know, so much wider than shoulder width, you know, standing in a typical USBSA box. And I'm not a tall guy, 5'11 or so, and I'm taking up the whole box. And the reason being is that we were driving the gun so hard from target to target with our legs and not talking about it. And then after a few months, we're like, you know, look, now it's time to teach somebody. And it's like, well, look the way we're doing it. It just sort of naturally progressed like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, I mean, that, that it would, that would happen almost intuitively and not, not in a manner that you're, Oh, I'm going to try this. Let's try this, try this, but it just, just feeding off each other. Uh, that's, that's such a unique opportunity. So, how can okay? I gotta I gotta ask this just my own curiosity. How contentious did it get when you guys were both shooting open and y'all? I mean, were there days where like 
you're kicking Matt's butt all day and he just doesn't talk to you for a couple of days after on the range or like, how, what does that look like? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because, um, it wasn't so much the, comp- it, it, we got super competitive, but there was, I think due to the relationship and that we were making us stronger, there were some outside influences that got in the way that there was a period of time where Max and I uh, didn't talk for quite a while, which was, which was pretty hard when you work in the same office. Yeah. Right. And, um, I don't know if somebody was threatened, but there was some manipulation. I probably shouldn't even talk about it, but you know what? I'm a free man. So (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Right. And, And Max and I worked it out and we figured out what happened. And, um, but yeah, when you're shooting the, shooting the same gun all you know, eight was that eight hours a day on the range yeah and you know you're competitive you guys are competitive by nature i'm competitive mm-hmm. by nature and you you want to beat him he's your teammate sure. but you want to beat him yeah, yeah. definitely yeah I, I mean i don't think i don't think you get to the top of the sport and not have that i don't i don't think it's possible um, it, it's i agree it's one of those deals like you want your friend to do well but you don't want to do better than you. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I was, I really wanted, I was happy for Jeff, the other, other guy from our co- podcast. I was real happy for him to be third at national single stack national this year, but I was really pissed that I was not second in front of him. You know, so I, him being third was no problem, but me being seventh and him being third, that was where I had a problem with it. Exactly. Like last, <laughs> last year when I shot carry optics against Boomer, like I wanted him to stop doing stupid things and losing matches, but I wanted him to still do enough stupid things that I beat him. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right, guys. Totally. (laughs) All right. So you left the, you left the AMU, uh, and, and you went straight from the AMU to para, right? Correct. Exactly. So my contract was, um, it was coming up. And Todd Jarrett had done 20 years at Para. And I heard, I heard through the grapevine that he was going to retire. And again, you know, be one of, being one of those guys that was, was a pretty big deal to me when I started, you know, he was winning so much. Guys, he used to win open and limited the same area back when you could do that. And that's oh, wow. scary. Yeah. That's against the burner and raw. That's pretty, you know. Oh, yeah. That's insane. Oh, man. He was tuned in. So I talked to Todd and then he introduced me to um, the owner and uh, we worked out a deal and um, that was, that was in 2011. And yeah, so, and I accomplished the goals that I set out to do, which was win the world shoot and start winning nationals. And I guess I shot two world shoots while I was in the army. The first one was um, Ecuador. I was third. And then, of course, the next one I won, and um, I won a couple more nationals before I left to go to Para. But I felt like I, I, you know, I achieved what I wanted to do. I ran the team for quite a while. I was a coach, um, and that that Para opportunity really, really came about. Is like you know, things in life, some things work out to be. I believe you know, there's a reason, and um, I went for it. Yeah, was a civilian again and a pro shooter. Oh, so I was a pro shooter for Para. Um, which was another one of my goals and it quickly, I guess I have a, a way of getting into more than shooting guys because 
even before my first day, I was, I was working on, I was working with George at EGW to come up with a better extractor. They were using the power extractor it was this MIMD modular piece. It's a great concept, but it, it wasn't working well. And so I got together with EGW and, you know, talked about volume and, and, and pricing and we did the prints on it. And my first day at Para up at the plant before lunch, I already had that replaced. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was like, and I remember walking out onto the floor with all the guys out there and they start slow clapping. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was fun, but it was, I had some great guys I was working with and, um, and I had the, uh, the support to go out and do things that I wanted to do, not just shooting wise, but, um, with product development and things of that nature. And, I went to the, I went my first nationals with para. I was shooting a stock gun. I did some trigger work on it and it was Las Vegas. It was limited. I was shooting a stock P16 and I lost by less than 10 points. It was, it was the, the last stage, the first position, there was a headshot with a no shoot and it was right on the top. It was in the border. Oh, <laughs> right there. Oh. Was that the year Blake won 2011? I think, you know, I think, yes, I believe it was. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. <laughs> wow. Good memory. Yep. Yeah, that was fun. But um, so my time with Para was sort of sort of short, but really long. And in, in, in the way that Remington came along and acquired Para. And um for cert for certain reasons. And um so I made the transition to Remington, but I was still we were still running the para brand, so I was still a para you know, representing para we kept the plan up in Char uh, Charlotte, North Carolina open. And, um, I was called, so I went from being like my title at para was professional shooter. And then Remington was like, we're going to bring you officially into Remington, but we don't have a professional shooter title. And so we're going to, we're going to call you a product manager slash professional shooter you're still going to be a professional shooter. That was the idea. And that quickly changed. And <laughs> I, um, at first I loved it and it was really interesting. I was getting a great education on, you know, lots of different aspects of the industry I was involved in. Um, obviously marketing, public relations, um, manufacturing, engineering a lot, obviously. Um, and just about anything, I mean, in doing, and, and, you know, Jared knows you, I would see him at a show. I was doing uh, sometimes over 70 shows uh, a year, like distributor. How, wait, how many? Yeah. Over 70 <laughs> that had nothing to do with shooting. Oh my gosh. Oh yes. my gosh. I do like five or six. I'm like, that's enough. <laughs> Let's do something else. <laughs> it gets, oh man, it's great. Like, and, and then. I was still able to go to matches. So I kind of had this facade that I was like still this professional shooter, but I think I'm dry firing at the shows with like an RP nine or something or an R one 1911 with a six pound trigger. Yeah. And I would get home and re repack my bags and then go to a match. And I didn't perform good guys. I, I dropped off. My performances took a, um, quite a dive and I was, I allowed myself to be pulled away from what my real passion which is teaching and competing and shooting. Yeah. And yeah. And it's my choice. There's no, nobody, nobody, but me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think, I mean, I think a lot of people 
think in this industry and they they saw you for for I mean you're a great example you know this he's a professional shooter for Remington and I think people think that there's like these just tons of professional shooters that all these companies are just paying money just to shoot and I'm not so sure that's that's really a reality for most for most shooters so like it, with Remington and stuff what did your actual training look like was it just dry firing while you're at a show with a Remington 1911 and a six pound trigger. Were you getting much actual training in, or or was that kind of got kind of it? It so yeah. What I would do is I is I would try to get in schedule and and try to get out of shows like a week before nationals, um, maybe a few days before like an area, and and then I would get out there and kind of relearn it all. <laughs> you know, wow. sharp tried to sharpen the blade, which at that point I'll be honest was pretty dull. Um, and then, and this is, if you can learn anything from me, be, you know, be, be aware of your environment and maybe people at work or people in your immediate circle, um, that can, that can hurt your performances and you're not knowing it. Right. I was in a, I was in an environment where constant leadership change, four or five CEOs, um, and, Thousands of layoffs, thousands of people being laid off. Really, it was a big company, right? Big Green. It's Remington. Yeah, yeah we had all the guns. We had all the ammo, ma major man uh, ammo manufacturer. We had Marlin, um, Tapco, Para. Uh, I'm forgetting some Barnes, but it was a huge company. And then you would, you don't know what's going to happen from week to week. And all of a sudden, oh man, you find out that 100 people at work just got laid off. And you're kind of, <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but I kind of internalized it and um, it hurt me performance wise. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't let that happen again. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But just be careful, you know, part of, part of performing well, may be controlling your, your immediate environment. And uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure. I, I could, I could completely agree with you. Uh, before I joined CZ, my, my previous employer, they made a major change and I got laid off on a Tuesday oh. and, and then I decided to still go shoot our, our Tuesday indoor match. Oh. And I, I, as you could guess, the, uh, the, the performance was like a very sharp decline of what it was like three weeks prior at nationals. I can't even imagine the, the good part is it sounds like you didn't shoot any, you know, shoot anybody and you made it home, <laughs> but that's about it. Huh? So okay, so you're. I mean, I mean, you you said it. You're a you're a free man now, uh, which it sounds. I mean, just listening to you, it sounds like that's just a massive bite. Like you get to shoot for yourself now, which you know it's funny. You came into the sport wanting to shoot for like that was your big goal. Is you want to shoot for somebody, and it's almost come full circle now. Now you get to shoot for yourself, which I imagine is probably somewhat freeing. So what? And I imagine you're wanting to get back to that when you were winning national titles, when you were winning world titles, obviously the skill sets there, the mindsets, the mindset's still there. So what is, you feel like your training is going to look like to get back to that performance level? Cause you got, I mean, this, this year's nationals, you had a really, it was a big step up from kind of some of your more previous nationals. I think, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I would, I would agree with you. You know, I had some equipment issues on the last day, but overall, um, I felt like, um, you know, I'm going to start believing my, believing in myself again, and I'm going to get my titles back, which 
and it's so important, guys, the confidence. You have to believe in yourself and you have to know that that match is yours. And everybody else there is to be scored against my 100%. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on. And so I'm going to be, I will, part of it, my training, my live fire, my dry fire. I drive fire um, daily. I don't do, a, I don't spend a whole lot of time on it, but I do, I do like, I enjoy it. I just, it's, it's fun to, to grip the gun. It's fun to draw and do reloads, work on some visual, visual fitness, whatnot. And live fire, I will probably go to, I would like to do three times a week. Mm-hmm. And I'm really working on lowering the volume of ammo for obvious reasons, right, guys? The the situation and the primer situation and all that. But what I'm finding is that I'm big on this isolation principle. And what I mean is I like to take a technique and break it down into parts. And it allows me to focus better on the individual components. I can spend less ammo on it. I'm more aware of what I'm doing. And I'm really using that, and it's it's working well for my students as well, seeing uh, more rapid progression. And so I'm not going to be shooting until my hands bleed. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So can you give us an example of, like, maybe something that's big picture that then you break it down into steps? Can you give us a, for instance, of, of what, you're, what you're talking about with that there? Yeah, absolutely. So... Something is as simple as uh, exiting a position. Um, and I will, I will exit a position based upon the, how I do it is going to be based upon the target array, right? What the, what the available targets look like and how I want to be shooting, moving out, right? I want to be exiting while I'm shooting. So I might, I might set up a simple barrel position and only shoot two rounds draw the gun and start stepping back and shoot fire two rounds or use a, use a crossover method, call it a lean and roll that I like to do. If I'm going left to right, I'm basing off of my right foot and my left foot is crossing over, keeps my, my upper body more uh, stable, more square to the targets. And I can work that a few times, you know, to just draw the gun and fire two rounds. Um, I might work on, um, the same thing with entries come in and, and, and fire it, you know, two rounds at one target, make sure that I'm presenting the pistol where I want to. There's a sweet spot there. You know, you, you, you get it up too late and you're going to be slow too early. That's also going to slow you down. So that that's an example of what I might do to, um, and then break, even breaking target, uh, transitions down as well. So I just find that it's just easier for me to refine it. And if I need to make any changes, you know, we talk about um, muscle memory and it's not like your, your muscles have memory. You have these uh, neuro pathways in your brain. And the more that you do more repetitions, you do, you start to create this pathway that becomes really, it becomes a highway where you're doing it so much that your subconscious wants to use it because it's the path of least resistance, right? Yeah, And if I need, yeah, if we're out at the range guys and let's see, I see, you know, Jared, you're, you're, you're drawing and I see between position two and three position two is where your hand, your, your support hand meets the gun and position three is full extension. And I say, you know, 
your your range of motion, I believe you're you're losing about fifteen hundredths of a second there. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm open to I'm open to hearing what you have in mind. Well, if we did this with the gun from position to position two, position three, you can save this time. But here's the deal: you don't have a neural pathway that has been wired for that movement yet. So it's going to take repetition. It's going to take intensity. It's going to take frequency. And you're, you have to have the desire and the intent to make that change. That change is called neuroplasticity. And this is a, it's a fairly new term in science. They used to think that when you stopped growing, that your brain was hardwired. You couldn't change it. And now they've since figured out that it's malleable. And you can create these new highways, basically. And so what I would what I would recommend to you is I would, and what has worked really well for me, if you heard the the, the idea, guys, the 10,000 repetitions yeah. to mm-hmm. become great. And I don't I don't subscribe to that anymore. Like that's old school. And what I've found works really well. It takes it's way more efficient. It takes less repetitions. I believe it's way more effective. And I, and I somehow stumbled onto this probably back in the late 90s, but it's slow motion training. So when I'm dry firing, you know, I told you I like to dry fire maybe five minutes a day. And let's say I'm working on the reload. I'm going to do most of my reps, probably half speed or less. The reason being, if I, if I ask you to do a reload full speed, wide open, 100% throttle, you're aware of what happened in the beginning and maybe the end. Or if it's a draw, let's say, give me a, give me a draw, guys. I'm going to put a part-time on you at 0.7. You remember standing there waiting for the beat, and you remember the gun at full extension. What happened in the middle? Man, it went by so fast. I don't know. But now if you do it slowly, you're aware of every section of the technique, and you can build these neural pathways when you're refining each step. You can build them faster, more efficient, and you can implement it. Hey, you got a match this weekend? I have proven to myself that I can get it committed to my subconscious, and I can use it in a few days. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because that's that's back in my former life when I, I used to be a trumpet player, um, and and that's that was a technique that was that was often used. You know, we're dealing with a lot of the same stuff, trying to do stuff really, really fast with trigger and, and I mean, with, I'm saying trigger with finger manipulations, uh, and stuff like that, lining that up with what you're doing, um, making the sound and stuff. And yeah, a lot of times the practice would be doing it at half speed. And then we had an actual metronome that you would do it at half speed and then you do it at three quarter speed and you go back to half speed and then you go full speed. Right. So it's, but it was using that half speed stuff to really get the, with the fundamentals of everything, completely solid where you know exactly what's doing. And if you can't do it at half speed, then you have no chance of being able to do it at full speed. That is, that is a perfect analogy. I mean, you name, I mean, that's, it's the same concept. Absolutely. I wasn't a musician or anything, um, but it's the same, same principle. Um, yeah, absolutely. What, what kind of, I find interesting. I think a lot of our listeners probably will is the, the thought of doing stuff at half speed, Mm-hmm. It, it, that's nothing new. The explanation there is an interesting thought that I hadn't thought about thinking of it that way. So it, it's yeah. certainly 
an interesting way of looking at something that you've heard before. I like that. I like that a lot, guys. And I'll say that um, another thing that became pretty evident to me early on was that when you shoot a match, you're going to be more consistent going at your natural hand speed. Hand speed has a lot to do with what we're doing, you know, our coordination, our motor skills. And sure, I was doing, uh, you know, slow motion, three-quarter speed and full throttle. But I would also do, because I've always enjoyed uh, strength training and weightlifting. And something we used to do in the gym is called four reps. So let's say you're, you're, you're capable of pushing 100 pounds for 10 reps. And you have a good spotter, you're going to put 120 pounds on, or 21, 20 more pounds, like you're going to do 120 now, and you're going to shoot for the same 10 reps. And he's going to put just enough, he's going to, you know, help you just enough that you can move that weight 10 reps. So I wanted to apply that to drive fire and, and increase my natural hand speed so that when I get to a match, I'm overall faster and I'm doing it more aggressive and explosive. And that was really simple as just taking a part-time, I call them forced reps, but if I'm working a movement, a range of motion or a technique, yes, I do a lot of slow motion, but to this day, I'll still put a, a part-time on that's maybe a 10th or two faster than I'm capable of and uh, work with that for a while and, and get that feeling. It gives you that urgency, right? That, that, that um, inherent desire to get on the gun now. Yeah. And, um, the, 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 the reason I don't do it that all the time is you do start to round the corners and you start to get sloppy. So I want to go back to slow motion. You know, you're back on the trumpet and you bring the metronome down to half speed and, uh, really work on refining the individual parts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, I think there's a ton of live that I think a lot of people do kind of live in that they're hundred percent range like that's kind of where they try to shoot all the time or, or that 95 to 100 percent range when maybe there's more value in living in that 60 percent and the and 120 percent because yeah when you when you go over what you can do like one you're going to train yourself to be faster but you're also going to like your eye you're you're forcing your mind to think faster than it than it can i i think it's a kind of a mind thing i i i actually liken that to I play a little bit of golf, like in the off season, I play a little bit of golf. And if you wanted to get, if you want to hit the ball further, it was, I was at an indoor driving range the other day. And what it is, I just tried to hit the ball as hard as I could. And I'm getting all the numbers. I know how fast my club head speed is, all that. I'm trying to hit the ball as hard as I possibly can. Well, it's interesting. Right after that, I did that for, you know, a bunch of reps. And then right after that, I went and just tried to hit normal. And all of a sudden my swing was way better. I was making excellent contact. All my movement was really good. Because I tried to do it at way over what was possible so that whenever I came back, my old 100% felt comfortable. But at the same time, if you live too much in that 120%, you got to come back to that 60% and get everything sharp and crisp again. And I, I think that's I think there's a lot of people that don't go in that. And I, I'm definitely guilty of that myself, not going slowing down and going past to find that 100% more consistent. Yeah, that I really like how you likened it to golf there in the golf swing. I think that that's huge. That's a great observation. Absolutely. So when you when you're doing these, and when you're actually in live fire and you're doing like 
you're breaking it down to like say two rounds on an, on an exit. You're doing that for a couple reps and then moving on. You're doing like 10 reps at that. And then you're, you're doing 10 reps of that and then trying to incorporate that into a bigger drill. Is that kind of, you've got, is that kind of how you're breaking down your practice? You've got a big drill and then you'll break it down in micro steps and then shoot the big drill again. Is that, am I, am I reading that correctly or is it different? Absolutely. Not all the time, but that would be my ideal setup. And I'm not going to do any more than 10, 10 reps. Um, okay. Sometimes I'll do less than that because I don't want to start, you know, I don't want to, I don't want it to become, you know, you get grooved in, which is completely, I mean, what's guys, what's the difference between practice and a match? What's probably the biggest single difference? Is it, well, to me, the, the misses don't hurt in a practice. Like you just tape it up and go again. Bam. You, you nailed. Yep. Yep. What'd you say? I, I was going to say that you have one try to do it. You guys both nailed it. You both, you both came to the same conclusion. You have one try to do it. So if I'm going to sit out there and do 500 rounds on, on exits, the same exit, I just feel that, and I've done that before. I did some stuff like that in the army guys. And I felt like the return on investment just, it just wasn't there. I want to, I want to, first of all, before I go out there, I want to determine, I want to be aware of two, maybe three things at the max that I'm going to work on. I don't want to have a list, a laundry list. Oh, you got to work on transitions, shooting on the move right to left, right? Um, weekend, um, you know, shooting, shooting um, from kneeling, prone. I want to have two or three specific goals that I clearly define that I can visualize mental imagery that I can visualize. And that's all I'm going to work on. Um, and that, and what I've gone to is, and you can go to my website, travismossi.com on, um, there's a resources section and I built this template. I built it for myself, but I wanted other people to be able to use it. And I've got, okay, number one, the budget, your ammo budget. Okay. Let's say you've got 200 rounds today. Maybe you have 500. I don't know. And then it's got your drills, your stages, whatever you're going to do. And you're going to commit to the sets right then. There's a section right there for sets and reps. There's a comment section. There's a hit factor. Start working those hit factors. And you're going to commit to that and take it out there. And you're going to have, uh, in my opinion, you will get more out of practice if you narrow your focus. And that, I guess that kind of goes along with breaking things down in some way, right? Yeah. Something that something that I've learned is that you have these three uh core neuromus neuromuscles, really. They're muscles and not in a literal sense. They are awareness, intent and action, okay? AIA. First of all, you need to be aware of what you need to do to improve. Maybe you took a class. Maybe you're watching a video and you're like, "You know, I'm late to present the gun around a barricade. I should have the gun up ready on line of sight as soon as that target is exposed i'm firing so that's your that's your you've decided that that's what you're going to work on next you have to have the intent so many people will maybe take a class or see a video maybe they see something on the forum they're like whoa that's a great idea okay you've got the awareness what are you going to do next with it you've got to decide that you're committed to it and you have the intention the next of course is the action that's going to the range and actually doing the work or doing it at home with a uh, dry fire. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, uh, that's a great resource to have 
just on your website. And that was, what was it? TravisTomasi.com? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Under resources. Okay. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds awesome. So when you're uh, working on the drills and, or working on something and breaking it down further in practice, do you also like to mix dry fire on the range as well and do some dry fire reps of what you're doing? Absolutely. That's a good one. I don't think enough people try that, but I do. And I do. And that, that kind of goes along with lowering the volume of ammo that I'm expending is, um, you know, there's a funny thing that happens and I don't care how tough you are when the gun goes off, it's an explosion and it's roughly 23, 24 inches from, from your eye. It's right in front of your face. Right. And it can be distracting. It can absolutely be distracting. You, you've mentioned distracting brings up like uh, sometimes I'll have people that'll be asking about like, why, why dry fire? Say I have an unlimited ammo budget. Why dry fire? It's like, because you're removing the distraction of shooting. Like you can focus on, on the, what you're doing without regards to the handgun going off in front of your face. Perfect. Perfect. Absolutely. I, I really think it does. And, it, and, it, and it, it's another level of awareness. And then, like you said, mix it with live fire, you know, stoke up and go for it. And um, I think there's a lot to be gained there for sure. You said you said you want to get back to where you nationals is is your mat. You you're trying to get your confidence back, uh, back to where when you were winning. And, and it's, it sounds like that's almost an, an admission that right now it's you don't feel have that same confidence. What and this is this is really a personal question for me because because I've I've been training for a long time and hard and and I I feel like I don't have I I struggle with that confidence at matches so I'm curious what you're gonna do to get that confidence back is that shooting matches for you and just winning matches again is it just training hard again or what is that what do you feel like that's gonna take for you to get that confidence where you want it to be my friend that's that is a an incredible question. And I would, I would go back to where I first had to learn it. Right. So I didn't win Nash. I started shooting in 95. I didn't win nationals until 2008 and the world shooting the same year. But along the way I had, I had people even telling me like, look, technique for technique, nobody can touch you. I yeah. mean, it, you know, you've got all the techniques. And at one point before this happened, I was like second to Rob Latham at limited like four years in a row. And, and, you know, somebody shoot him in the knees already. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> now, now we know why he had a knee replacement. Yeah. <laughs> Finally had to do, what is it? Nancy Kerrigan or Tanya Hardridge? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, there's going to be a bunch of young listeners that have no idea what you're talking about, but I definitely remember that. That's hilarious. Man, thanks guys. That way I won't feel so old, but, <laughs> um, so, and, Okay, so this is this is a pattern here, and um, an admission here was that did I really believe that I could win? I, I, I'm, a, I'm kind of a realist, and I was sur- I was surrounded by people who were inherently had a really strong mental game and had really strong confidence, but myself, um, I didn't, and so I had to I had to come up with a way. Here's the thing. You've got to get the ball rolling. It's like snowballs. And what I had to do, and what you may have to do to yourself, is you have to start acting as if. You have to, it's almost like a lie in the beginning. 
Yeah. I, I started thinking like politicians, these guys, they go along, they go around the whole, the whole campaign saying they're going to lower taxes or they're going to, you know, whatever these promises. And I can guarantee you hundred percent. They have no intention to, right? Exactly. <laughs> they say it every day. They get in the limo. Okay. What are my talking points? You're going to lower taxes. I lower taxes. They get to the point guys where they are probably convinced they're going to lower taxes. And for me, I had to get the ball rolling and there was no other way than, than starting to almost like, I don't want to say lie to myself, but I had to, I had to get the ball rolling by saying, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to do it. And that included, I'm a, you, I'm a modest guy. I'm very humble. And it's a weakness performance wise guys. Trust me. Yeah. (laughs) It is really a weakness. I agree. Right. And, um, part of that had to be verbalizing and I would verbalizing, you know, uh, I'm going to have a great match. I can't wait to win the nationals. I can't wait. Maybe you're looking to win your class, whatever it is. Um, and you start verbalizing it around your, your family and you look for ways to, um, you look for ways to start to, 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 you start to believe in it. And I have to tell you another thing that was really, really crucial for me. So when we talk about visualization guys, right, we're building an image, mental image in our, in our mind. And I have found personally that it's the, the probably the most effective way to communicate with the subconscious. So what I started to do, I started to do two types of visualization. One was process-based. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people are already using this and this is building an image of the steps that you need to do to be successful. Okay. That sounds great. The other one is outcome-based. Now you start visualizing actually accomplishing your goal. You want to win nationals? Start visualizing. What's it like to, um, what does it feel like when you find out, when you look at the results and you see your name on the top? What is the emotions? Those emotions release chemicals and hormones and they start to, that right there will really help your confidence. And yeah, in a lot of sport, a lot of sports psychologists will say, well, that I've talked to will say that outcome-based is a waste of energy because you're going to get this dopamine and your body's going to say, you know what? Hey, don't work hard. You've already accomplished it. You know, you're good to go. Don't worry about that. And I completely disagree, guys. So going back to, to 2008, the, the beginning of the year, I still hadn't won. And I had a lot of army obligations that year. The, the total rounds that I shot that year was 8,000 or less. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which is not a lot, right? No. And especially to be at that, to, to try to, your, your goal here is you've got nationals. And then I won World Shoot like three weeks later. So and I'm, and I remember being in this army school. I think it was like called warrior leadership course. I was doing something like that. And it was a school that went on all day. You know, you're out there at four in the morning in formation, unbelievably boring. And it would go all the way. It was all night, always tired. And you know what my goal is, right? I told you what my goal was. Yeah. And, and so I'm asking myself, well, I mean, this is part of what you got to put up with, but I'm like, what can I do to, cause I don't have a gun in my hand. I'm not going to have one for for weeks, maybe a month or more. So I started visualizing 
I would stand there in formation and visualize being on the podium at World Shoe with a gold medal around my neck, holding the U.S. flag, goosebumps. I would get goosebumps, guys. Um, I remember visualizing hearing uh, We Are the Champions from Queen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, would, and, and I, I know that my body was 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 releasing these 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 uh chemicals and hormones and was responding to this visualization because it was so vivid and it got to be i mean yeah i wasn't shooting but maybe that gave me more opportunity to work on these type of things visualization may not be you may not be able to quantify it so sometimes when you're you're trying to teach a student how important it is he may say you know i mean it's not like taking a tenth of a second off my reload well, you know, it can though, if you do it, but it's yeah. not really, it's not really a way that you quantify it. But I re I really believe that that helped me. And I did that a lot because I wasn't shooting that much. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, I, I think that's the first time I've, that may be the first time I've heard that type of visual, maybe not the first, but I don't hear that very often that, that type of visualization of, of actually visualizing yourself winning it. So I, I relate to whenever you say you almost had to like lie to yourself at the start of it just to get the ball rolling. So how long did it, how long were you quote unquote lying to yourself before you actually believe were believing it where it wasn't, where it wasn't lying to yourself. You're just like, yeah, I'm going to win. That's a good, that's a really good one. I would say um, I could feel the benefit from that in less than a month. Okay. Okay. So, but so it wasn't like, um, I'm going to do this for a few nights and, and it was sort of like, is like, you want to build a muscle. You have to do sets and reps. You have to give it rest, nourish it, come back, do it again. You know, you can't just go to the gym once and go, oh, wow, I got 22 inch arms or something. You yeah. Know? It takes, right. It takes, so it was progressively doing more. And I would look at it almost like visualization. Like I would do stacks of sets and reps. And, and take that time to, um, to, to really to, because it's tiring guys, if you hear, and so, but, I, but to answer your question, I would say that in a little under a month, I started to feel pretty confident. And at yeah. least at that point, you know, it was starting to snowball. And then I could say things like we'd be in the team room and I would say things that were pretty cocky for me to say yeah. out loud. And it felt good. And it was like, yeah, that's cause that is me. That's my match. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, I do think you're right that you need that mentality if you're going to win in this sport, because the other, the other guys you're competing with it, if you're not naturally cocky, they probably are. They probably have that innate confidence that, that helps them naturally. So, I completely agree. Almost all of the winners do, uh, yeah. you know, and some of them aren't the, the most fun to hang around. They're very self-centered maybe. And, um, and and inherently have this self-worth and, but man, it's performance enhancing for sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it reminds me of my friend, Jeff, like he's, he's tough to hang around. He's always, yeah, he's, he's tough. Sasquatch, what do you got? I, I don't, I don't remember what friend I was talking to the other day. We were talking about somebody and they're like, it's like, he just seems so cocky. I'm like, it would be really hard to be that, that good and not, not come off as cocky. Like, yeah, yeah. When, when you're that good, and you're, you're part about believing it. I, I don't remember which book it was, but I think it was one of Ben's books where he was talking about like when he won his first nationals, like 
every, you know, you have to believe it so much to the point where you believe it more than the 10 guys that also believe it that you're going to beat at that match. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, a, that is the truth. I, I, that was my experience. It really was because, and in those guys that you're, you know, they, they're working on this stuff too. Well, right. I mean, you, you look at, uh, just, you know, pick a, pick a nationals where there's three, four or five guys that are within, you know, three or 4%. And that seems probably like a lot, but it's say it's a hundred points over a 22 stage match. Like, I mean, that is, that is next to nothing to be beating everybody else by. Exactly. It's, it's so little that it's such a small difference. It really is in the big scheme of things. That is and, the truth. And, and you can almost guarantee that, like, you take first through fifth place in any super or any national title, those guys probably have a very similar skill set. It, it's which one absolutely knew without a shadow of a doubt that they were going to win that match. Yes. Yes. You know, the win is at that point, uh, most of it's probably above the neck. Yeah. Yeah. Place, right? That's where the win is. I feel like we can't talk about your your shooting and your training though without bringing it up. Your your reload speed. I mean, I don't know anybody that shot USPSA that hasn't seen that old video that's on YouTube from your AMU days, I guess. Oh when yeah. You're doing, when you're doing a reload with like an open gun or something, and it's just insanely fast. How did you get there? <laughs> um, I want to talk about that video because I somebody asked me out the other day and it was pretty funny. But how I got the reload, so, um, gosh, guys, again, it was like an obsession. It was like, first of all, I really enjoy dry firing reloads for some reason. Something like, it's like making a swish, you know, the basketball, and I wasn't good at basketball. <laughs> um, so there was, there was the, the, the tactile nature of it, and it just really, I really analyzed it hard. So going back to 95, you know, you didn't have like digital. I don't think we had digital, because I had like a little like camcorder thing and it had a little cassette in it and I'd set it up and I would do a, I would do maybe, you know, six reps and then I would move it. And I made a perimeter around myself, like a, a complete circle. And I would analyze every angle. I would analyze, um, my hand speed, you know, something, a visualization I used is, and something I became aware of was the idea of your antagonistic muscle tension. Okay. And you're protagonistic. So if I ask you to curl your hand, your bicep is contracting, your tricep is relaxing. If you try to keep your tricep tense, it's very difficult to be to curl or even to do it quickly. It's going to be hard. And if you think about like a, a bullwhip, it makes a really loud crack. Do you know what that crack is? It's breaking the sound barrier. The tip of that bullwhip is going like 1,400 feet per second. I visualized that my arms and my mag draw, mag draw is key to the speed of a reload. I visualized that it was like a bullwhip. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Accelerating. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's a race between my mag, hitting the mag release and drawing the mag. Things like that. I just, um, you know, I, I broke it down so far. And guys, I'll tell you, I don't know that that, I wish I could have spent that time maybe on uh, accuracy or <laughs> actually shooting or mindset. You know, I hadn't done any mindset stuff that by then. Um, 
but yeah, it was, it was definitely something that it just, I didn't think about looking back now. I'm like, man, I spent a lot of time on that and there. I wish I could have maybe invested it in something else. Um, yeah, but that video is legendary. So like, I mean, it's, it was worth it. It was totally okay. worth it. What, what, what year did you film that video? So, okay, here. So I just got out of basic training. I hadn't touched a handgun in, was it four months? I, you know, I shot an M16A4, a 249, a 240, an AT4. That's all I handled. And Saul Kirsch, you know, Saul Kirsch for Double Alpha. Mm. He, yeah, he used to film the Nationals and put a really nice DVD. He'd produce a really good yeah. DVD. And yeah, so he, when I got out of basic training, I went over, over to the AMU. And Saul was there training with Max and we were, we were just about going, you know, we were a week out from going to the 2003 open nationals in Oregon. And Saul said, we were sitting in the office and Saul had this big camera and he said, I've always admired your reload. And I'm kind of, wow. Wow. You know, and that coming from you, that means a lot. And he says, how about I video it? And I'll put it on the Nationals DVD. And I'll give you a free DVD if you do it. (laughs) 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 I'm like, you know, so can you give me to the end of the week? I want to dry fire a little and maybe we can do it live fire. And he's like, no, just do it now. Just, just do it. So I did a few reps pointing this way and then a few reps that way. And he said, that's going to work. And he's like, I'm going to put that on YouTube. And I said, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Nobody wants to look at a truck firing video. I mean, that sounds ridiculous. And it shows you how out of touch I am, guys. I'm marketing myself. <laughs> it show, you know, I remember a couple of days or a couple of years later seeing people pirated it off of Saul's. And, and there was one that had 10 million views, 850,000 comments. Another one had six and a half million. And it was, and I was being contacted by YouTube. And some other video company, it started with an M, and they're asking to buy the rights. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't know anything about monetizing videos. And I'm like, those are, it's not mine. It's this guy, Saul Kirsch. And um, so I was so out of it, guys. That's just, again, my mentality being focused on shooting one thing, right? And it's funny to look back now because that video um, has so many, oh, man. That's crazy because 10 million views, that's that's worth that's starting to worth quite a bit of money at that point. And you got nothing out of it. You got it. Well, you got a DVD out of it. Yeah. The best part is it's probably the DVD that Double Off would just put up for free on YouTube. <laughs> probably is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, know, you, you talked about that, though. Like, I I came into the sport in 2015, and I'll bet you I had seen that video before I ever knew what USPSA or IPSC was. Like it, yeah. it, it, just, it is legendary in the sport. It boggles my mind, and I thought it was ridiculous when he told me he was put it on YouTube. I'm like, man, that's the boringest video. <laughs> wow. And and funny, it's funny, guys, because it um it was actually uh I got a an email from USPSA one day and they said, Hey, you know, Mythbusters is trying to get a hold of you. And, um, we, we have a policy. We don't give out information. And are you interested? I said, yeah, I'm interested. Are you kidding? And they, and they found me through that video somehow. And they figured out I was a USPSA shooter. 
And that's how they approached me. And they said, look, we don't know how we're going to use you yet. Um, but would you be willing to come out to California and um, be on the show? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm there. You tell me when. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us more about Mythbusters. Yeah. That, you know, that's that's a very unique opportunity that not many people. We've had a few people like Blake McGavis was on that top shot. I think was he JJ was on top shot, I think. Uh, but not many people in our in our world get to be on shows like that. So what was that? What was Mythbusters like? It was um, it was as cool as you would think it was. It was a little different in some respects. First of all, it was a little uncertain because uh, I wanted to prepare for it, but they didn't know how they wanted to use me. The concept was all they told me. The concept was um, we want to see if the gunplay in movies is real you know the, the the rate of fire and the reloads and all this and you know we might have you throw up a mag and then catch it in the mag well or something and i'm like man i'm not doing that's the part <laughs> i do you know and so i went out there with really no uh idea of what we were going to do and they they it was raining it was in san diego and it was raining and they said we're going to go to this indoor range and we've got it until like eight o'clock. You know, do you think that'll be enough time? And I said, I'm sure it will be. And so we get into this range and set everything up. And this actor shows up, director, John Favreau or something. Yeah. Okay. I think he directs like Iron Man or anything. Yeah, he was in Iron Man. Uh, yeah. He, yeah. He's, he's a big name. Yeah. He's a big name. Okay. And I didn't, I kind of recognize him. You know how sometimes people look different in real life. And everything the whole thing came to a stop and everybody is like catering to this guy and soon it's like after lunch and then we're still we haven't even fired around yet and i'm like nervous i'm like man i don't know what i'm gonna do and they're calling they're calling the mags clips things like that and i'm like wait wait stop <laughs> you're gonna lose our audience if you're doing that and, okay okay and they had these bone stock paras that came in from the um, the local like sheriff's department. Yeah, and yeah, and I'm dry firing it, and I'm like, this is a nine or ten pound trigger. Oh, this gosh. trigger is so heavy, and it's funny because they started shooting uh, blanks. They they started with blanks, and you could see, you know, they're twenty one round or twenty round mags. Towards the end of the first mag, they're getting slower. Their splits are creeping, and I'm like, yeah, mine are too. Mine are going to. I'm like, what am I going to do? So they finally decide well, we're going to shoot this target. It was like a bullseye style target at 12 yards. We're going to use a stopwatch. And you do, you fire a full mag to go to slide lock because if you don't slide lock reload, people don't understand that the gun is empty. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, mag change, do it again and do three 20 round mags. That was their idea. And they've been goofing off the whole time and, and talking to, they were cool. The guys were, the guys were cool. And they're exactly like, was it Jamie and Adam? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Okay. And I really like the smarter guy that wears the, did he have a beret? He, he was really, he was more of the guns. Yeah. He was cool. And, um, and he was more of a, more of a real dude, you know, he's a real dude, but he wears a beret. Just, just so we yeah, got that. Exactly. <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. And um, they've got this camera, guys. It's this high-speed camera called the Phantom. And it's a $130,000 camera. <laughs> it has this massively loud fan and it's huge memory. I can't remember the frame rate, but it was 
unreal. So we were doing all this B-roll stuff with me, you know, just shooting the gun, then doing a reload, some cool stuff. And, and then they finally do their competition where they're going to do the three mags. And we're, we're running out of time. The range is like, you know, you've maybe got 15 minutes left. I still haven't got to shoot. I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to be on the show now. And then finally I got to, and I did this, you know, dump the mags like they did. And they just lost their mind. They're like, we're going to have to slow it down. I'm like, don't slow it down. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> I'm like, guys, I could do a better one if you let me do it. And they're like, no, that's going to be hard for people to, you know, normal people aren't going to really be able to process that. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and um, that was basically the extent of that. And it was really fun, but it was like not knowing. Oh, and they keep their, they're like, you know, we just got this guy over here from Australia because they, they pay your expenses and everything. And um, he was supposed to be able to catch um, arrows. Yeah. He really talked himself up. You know, he really blown himself up that he can do this. And they said in order to get it, to get the final shot, they were like hand throwing them, tossing them gingerly to this guy. And they had to manipulate like, are you going to be like that guy? And I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but if you give me a try, give me a chance, I'll try. But that was wow. So they they brought you in to show you just to show what's humanly possible, and they said, "No, that's too fast. We can't. We can't have that. That's too. That's too good. People can't understand that." <laughs> I mean, that has you know. We were talking about confidence and ego and stuff. That's got to at least boost your ego a little bit at that point. You're like, okay, yeah, I guess I am kind of good at this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It would it would be better if it was coming from you guys, but. <laughs> <laughs> what well, what did you go win the next match you shot after that? Man, that is a really good question because that would have confirmed that it, it definitely helps my ego. <laughs> I don't remember. That's a good question. <laughs> I remember Man. an off season or something. Man, Travis, I could this has been awesome. Like I could ask questions for a long time. I got one more one more kind of Real question. Then we've got several listener questions that we'll try to get through quick. Uh, you've you've been super generous with your time, and I really appreciate that. But the one thing that I'm interested in, and I haven't had a chance to ask too many people this because there's not that many people who have been in the sport as long as you have at the highest level that you have. Uh, there's there's just not that many people. You're very unique in that regard. So my my question is is how do you feel the sport has has progressed or not progressed from 1995, 97, when you were, you know, when you were second to Rob four times in a row, uh, it's what Rob was doing then to, to the guys that are winning now, would that Rob of 20 years ago win now, or is the sport progressed quite a bit past that? Ooh, man, I feel like it has progressed. I, I really do think it has because for number one, you have so much access, easy access to, a lot of information. Yeah. Feel, yeah. And I feel like, um, you know, guys are training hard and I do believe that it has progressed, but, but on the other hand, I would say that those guys have also progressed, you know, yeah. some of them, not all of them. Some, you know, we get up in age possibly, and <laughs> some guys have not aren't doing it anymore. Um, but to your, to your point, I do believe it has progressed. I really, I do. I do think it's, um, it's very competitive. Yeah. I mean, cause that's, I mean, that's interesting because it's, you know, you're training to get to a point and say you're training to win. Well then if you say you do win, 
like like the 2008 that you did win, well, next year that's not good enough anymore. Like you can't just train to that level again. And and so for guys, maybe guys that have been, say you've been perennially at, at 90% in nationals for which have put you on the super squad. Uh, if you're there, if you've been there for the last seven years, well, that 90% that you're at now is probably would have been 95, 96, 97% of what you were seven years ago, maybe. Uh, do you think that's a fair, is that, is that kind of fair? I, I do agree with that. I think that is fair. I believe that it's progressing that much. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, you know, I did have a thought about going back to the time that I started this. And when I was coming up in, you know, mid to late nineties, guys, there was a different feel, um, especially being in the super squad. Maybe perhaps it was because if you won back then, it could mean possibly quitting your job and shooting. Yeah. Uh, and, and not just in the sense that you start, you know, your academy and your teaching on your own self-employed. I mean, there were big deals back then, guys. There was, mm-hmm. I, I'm not privy to all of them, but I remember some holster deals that were really close to six figures, just the holster. That's crazy. Yeah. And there was like an electricity in the air and there was, I maybe being the new guy back then and sort of being a new threat, there were some things that I had to go through um, that I don't see the guys going through today. Um, it seems it's more, a little bit more laid back and uh, I can tell you stories. I maybe shouldn't tell them all, but you know, 98 limited nationals, I was winning the match and gosh, what is that? My third, my third, uh, third year in the sport. And back then, another thing to remember is that the Nationals was standalone. So everybody was shooting one division. Yeah. Right? And I was using a brand new gun, this gun that was just deemed legal. It was a Caspi in 40. I had 18 rounds in the mag. Everybody else had 20. And I started hearing little comments from certain people. Oh, those mags look long. You know, Tomasi's mags look long. And I mean, the first stage I won by like 18 match points. It was, I was dialed, you know, yeah. I was like, okay. And I didn't have fear. I was younger and, uh, you know, I don't know. It was just, I was on point. And at some point they'd never, I'd never seen them do this before guys at some point, And I don't know what started this. I felt like it was because of, I'd never measured my mags and I don't think most people had. And they came out with this. They didn't have that EGW mag gauge back then. I think this is what prompted it, which if you know the, the, uh, the EGW mag gauge for a 140 is 141.25 millimeters, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So I had these 18 round mags that I bought and I just assumed they came with a gun that the guy that built them, it was all good to go. And, um, I'm winning the match and. This one stage I went first, it was a stage where they were picking up the mags and they had this kind of like an improvised gauge. And I don't recall how they were doing it because it was a very, the situation was very emotional. So what happened is they didn't get me and there's maybe three stages left. And I said, okay, I can't do, I can't, I can't do this. I got to go find, it was Gary Stevens. I got to go find him and I got to measure my mags because I can't, I'm not going to win this way. This is, I can't do it. And I went and found Gary and I gave him my mag and gosh, he tried so hard to make it fit guys. He really tried. Like you could tell, um, you know, he was a good guy and, and maybe I don't, I don't know. I don't pour words in his mouth, but he tried and he tried. And eventually he finally said, I'm sorry, Travis, we got to move you to open. 
Wow. Yeah. And it was, uh, I took that mag home and I measured it, it was 140.2. And it held. So I guess the idea was that the 140 even was the, <laughs> and it was so funny because people were, we were at uh, PASA and people were going out the night before and getting files. And you see all these new file marks on these Dawson pads and whatnot. And I didn't do that. I, you know, I'm like, Hey, I've already started the match. I'm not going to do that. And, um, uh, that was quite, that threw me that it damaged me for quite a while. It was, it was a hard, it was hard to, I was really angry that that yeah. went down. Yep. And I tried to justify that. Hey, you were, you were too, you know, you were 0.2 over. It doesn't matter that you only had 18 rounds. It doesn't matter. That was a disadvantage for whatever happened. You, this happened. And, um, they actually, the USBSA got sued. Um, I think they settled out of court. I did not, I wasn't involved in that. Um, but that, that was a really hard thing for me to come back from. And, um, I'm, I'm glad that I finally did, but it was cutthroat back then guys. It's a long way to tell you that it was different. It was, it was cool to be able to experience it both ways. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, so many people want that, what they want the money back in the sport. Like they, because right now, you, yeah, you can win nationals, and then the next day, your life is no different for for a lot of people nowadays. And so people are like, "Man, I wish there was more money in the sport." But at the same time, you put more money in the sport, and yeah, that that cut those stuff. And I've heard a lot of other stories from from back in that day of what it was like. And it, we're a self policed sport. I mean, yeah, we have ROs and all that stuff, but the truth is, we're we're self policed. And so, yeah, you throw money in this and then, yeah, maybe the sport that we think we want to have money and maybe we don't, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting, interesting look on it. Yeah. Good, good point. I, yeah. It brings about different things for sure. Yeah. You know, it, it, it probably completely sucked to be in that position, but I, I would like to think that most people would be like, I want to make sure this is right before the win. Yes. I, I don't think most people would. I did. I, I don't think most people would. You want to hope most people are. I, I would hope that I would be able to do that too, but that, that had to be tough. I looked around and I saw a lot of file marks on the, on the back of those pads. Yeah. <laughs> um, Oh man. But it, it, it says a lot in the positive way that you did. No, it certainly speaks that I mean Travis has definitely has something that that's greater than what anything you can get from this sport. I mean, ha to have integrity like that uh is, you know, that's that's something that's that's more admirable than whatever your reloads were or anything like that. That's definitely uh extremely admirable. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, are we ready for some well before we get to any listener questions, um I wanted to ask Travis a little bit about his uh, his training business, uh, Travis Demasi High Performance Marksmanship Training. Yes, sir. Uh, so I, I did a quick glance through on your website. See that you're doing you know online lessons, two day classes, uh, small group classes, individual classes. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, you know what you're doing for the online ones, what your what your classes look like, and then of course you know how people contact you if they're interested. Do you travel for those? Do they come to you? Yes, absolutely. I travel for those. And, and the most, most popular one is my, is my, uh, two day class. And, um, 
you can contact me at just uh, Travis at TravisTomasi.com. And um, I'm also, yeah, I, I'm doing the online training, which I'm really enjoying. It was, it was a way to connect with people that maybe can't get to a class. And, um, you know, I don't know if we're going to get locked down again. So I want to have that available to people. And I like to teach in between the classes. I want to stay, stay in the teaching mode. And in some ways, it's kind of like being also a coach, you know, it, we, we come up with, I want to be focused on the topic before we start. And I do it in hour sessions. And um, I don't know, I'm really enjoying that. But I'll also do private instruction as well. And, you know, with one or two people and then small group classes. And um, I'm, I'm loving it, guys. You know, I'm, I'm not that uh, sponsored shooter for the manufacturer anymore. I'm, I'm able to do, it's my passion. I love it. It was, it's something that I've always loved. If you go back to 95, guys, I told you, you know, I made Grandmaster in my nine months and I was shooting in Washington. I was winning in Washington, Oregon, like Northern California. And, and, and some guys got a hold of me, called me and they said, Hey, will you come teach a class? We got like 12 guys together. And wow. I was like, you know, this, this sounds pretty cool. And it was like, I was kind of pulled into it. And immediately I just, it was, it was, um, I immediately could tell that this is what I wanted to do. It was, it left such a big impact on me. And it's, it's one thing to work on yourself and figure these things out, especially back then when you have, it's just you and any VHS, VHS tape of the nationals you can find, but now, you know, but now you've got to figure out how to translate that to students. And you have students of different levels. You have different personality types. They have different challenges and, Oh man, I love that. That's one of my favorite things. So I'm really happy to be doing that again and doing that full time and getting to focus on that and shooting. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we need to uh we need to have Travis come do like a small group set. We need to have all the podcast guys get together and have Travis come coach coach the podcast up. See if he can turn some of us into decent shooters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe he can help Boomer beat Max next year. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Travis is used to competing against him, so he can get Boomer over that hump. <laughs> Boomer, Boomer, our other podcast guy, uh, Jason, it, it, he he was second this year at Chaos Nationals. I saw that. You all, you guys shot great at Nationals this year. Congratulations to all of you. So, uh, just uh, quickly on the online lessons, I feel like that's probably the biggest thing where you or doing something different than, than so much that's offered. So you said an hour long session, uh, what's a, a typical one look like? So a typical one would look like, um, I try to, I may analyze the video to see what I think that we should focus on, or somebody comes to me and says, Hey, these, I believe these are my weak areas. And, and then I will, I've got, um, <clears throat> videos that I reference. I do it in Zoom. So I, you know, I slow things down. I have files kind of based on those techniques. So I can critique them. And I like to do, I kind of like to be prepared before the hour starts so that it's not, you know, we're not taking too much time. Um, but yeah, and it's, it's just a back and forth, you know, it's private. You, you can ask me whatever, you know, whatever you want. you you don't have to share the time 
with somebody else's weaknesses and we can just focus on you. So I, I like that aspect to it. It's, it's enjoyable. Yeah. That's, that's an incredible opportunity for people. Uh, people, if, if you want to get better to get an, to get an hour of individual time with a guy like Travis, uh, especially with Travis's, not only his shooting credentials, but his teaching credentials, like as much shoot t- training as he was doing with AMU and all that, like he wasn't just developing shooting skills at that point. He was developing teaching skills, which is a separate, total separate skill. But to, to be able to get an hour one-on-one with Travis like that is would be incredible. You're missing the biggest part. It's not an hour of his time. It's an hour plus the time he spent preparing. True. Like he's coming in there prepared. You're probably spending 30 minutes, 45 minutes ahead of time reviewing video, making sure you're ready. It absolutely gets there really quick. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 an incredible opportunity that people need to definitely need to take advantage of. Yeah. Before we jump into the listener questions, I, I feel like I we have to hit this. I made a note of it when you were talking about it, your AMU days. Your uh or your AMU days. Coaching in the Army. So our sport's something where you don't typically have coaches. And I think that is an interesting thing that is different with the AMU where you guys are coaching. Can you tell us a little bit about the actual coaching side of it, not just the instructing, but coaching? Yes, it was it was it was as far as developing a training plan for the other guys, you know, at that point, um, especially with me being uh, one of the older guys on the team and having, having the, you know, the titles, it was, it was building their training pre- program and mentoring them daily on the range. This is what I want you to focus on today. These are the weaknesses. I would, you know, see the weaknesses because we shoot the match together and travel together. And then we would get back and it would be, um, and some of this isn't necessarily written in stone or anything. You, you, in some ways you kind of just assume that role and, um, but it, it's, yeah, it's different in teaching that it may not be, Hey, like, we're just going to work on, I'm going to show you how to do a faster transition, or I'm going to show you how I, how you can save three quarters of a second by entering this position. It's more, we're going to train together. I'm going to mentor you and I'm going to monitor your progress. And these are the things I want you to focus on. And you need to start building your mindset. I don't see you working on that. It's like a muscle. You got to start, you got to start investing time in that. It amazes me that we don't have like coaching in our sport. It's just like, when you talk about it, it just seems so obvious. Like, why isn't this a, a thing? Like, why isn't it a regular thing? Like, online lessons it's not something that you commonly see but it's like i'm surprised that there's not more people doing that yeah it's you know it's not going to be as lucrative as doing a group class for certain um i don't know but i really i really enjoy it and i i also get a lot of um personal gratification seeing people accomplish what they're setting out to do and um i i gotta tell you guys it's it gives me the same emotions as winning. And I really felt that with the soldiers too, especially in the army. It's like, if you're open-minded enough to come to me, you know, you're kicking doors down and, and certain units would, um, they would request me and I would, and I would go up there and, and train them. And, it, you know, they don't care about rank and they don't care about me, you know, standing at parade rest for them. They're just like, look, dude, you're fast and accurate. 
And I want you to share that with us. We'll spend the yeah. week and we're, and man, it was, oh gosh, I loved it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about a cop of it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, we, we got a pretty good uh, list of listener questions here. And I think uh, some of them are going to be quite interesting. So the uh, the first question we asked from our listener was, if you could only do one drill for training, what would it be? And that kind of changes day by course. day, we but say let's say course. I'm on a, a deserted island or whatever. I'm going to pick an El Presidente. It's going to work. It's 12 rounds. It's Virginia count. It's going to work my draw, my grip, my splits, my transitions, my stance. Reload. My reload, yeah, good call. The reload, um, and it's fun. I I think it's a fun drill. So I would say the El Prez, old school. Well, see, th- and I think that makes perfect sense because thankfully we're not limited to one drill. But you're looking for something that is implementing a lot of parts of our sport in it in one thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Well, something that I don't think comes up a lot for people is you know what does your nutrition look like at major matches? Like, I don't think a lot of us think about it too much. It's like, well, I only had six beers last night. So 12. <laughs> so, you know, any special snacks, supplements, drinks that you like to make sure you have at, at major matches or yeah, at matches. Absolutely. And I start, I actually start about one or two days out and just real quick, I don't want to take too much of your time, but what I recommend is you figure out, you go to a BMR calculator online. It's a basal metabolic rate. And you figure out what you, ex- what, how many calories you use in a day to keep you alive, like if you're in your coma. And then you figure out how much you expend when you're on the range. I've done that, you know, kept my phone in my pocket and, and measured how many miles. I've done 22, 25 miles at a major match that you shoot all day. That's a lot of calories. The point of all this is I want you to come into the match with a caloric surplus. So if you decide that you're going to be on that day, you're, you're uh, consuming 4,500 calories. I think you perform better. I've experimented with this. I believe you perform better on a surplus than you do a deficit. And then when you get there, I like to snack often keep your blood sugar, you know, level and, and keep from getting hungry. You know, it's just like when you, when you get thirsty, it's too late. So hydration snacks. I want, I want you to eat good, high quality protein, quality carbs and quality fat, really good macronutrients and, and play with it. You you know, you get that. There's an app you can get for free. Like I think it's my fitness app, my fitness pal. And just for one day, People don't like to do this, I'll tell you. But this, <laughs> just for one day, record how many calories you're consuming and see what it looks like. And then try to figure out, hey, how can I go into this next major match with a surplus? If it, I'm looking for any way that I can improve my performance. And um, I think that does help, guys. One, one, one cautionary, don't ch- change a lot of stuff right before the match, right? If you're like, man, I eat, I eat burgers every day, and now you want me to have like uh, chicken breast and rice. I mean, keep it, keep it, you know, keep it static. No. Keep, yeah. That part right there is, is so important. I think a lot of people forget, like if you drink coffee or a Mountain Dew every morning, like that would be the absolute worst thing to change before you shot a match. Like 
not having caffeine or or if you don't ever have caffeine, having a bunch of caffeine. Yeah, it's like the same way. It works both ways, right? I agree. Yep. Kind of on a, on a similar topic, uh, one of our listeners would like to know, can you share your workout routine? Okay, so um, I enjoy lifting weights. It's just something that I really like to do, um, increase my strength. And so, but I balance that with cardio and HIT, which is high intensity interval training, which I think applies well to our sport. Um, so I enjoy doing isolation movements, bodybuilding style. I'm not, I do that because I can build sort of a symmetrical strength through my, through my different uh, parts of my body and keep, you know, stay strong, but don't try to favor one thing. Um, so I spend time on the weights. I spend time on like steady state cardio, which I found is, is lowering my heart. My heart rate's getting really low. Um, and I like the hit. So that hit is maybe sprints like shuttle runs, um, in the off season. And then more specifically would be like setting up a field course and running through it as fast as I can, almost out of control in those direction changes and getting the heart rate up. And then dealing with that heart rate when you come into position. Okay. And then exploding out again. You know, we're looking for this explosive movements in our sport, really. Not just hand speed, but driving with your legs out of position, um, using your leg, using your legs to drive the gun to the next target, like the lowest pivoting point of your body, developing power from there. Um, so I'm not, I know I'm not getting a lot of specifics, but, um, I like the weights and you're not going to get slow. You know, people like, well, I'm going to bulk up. They think they're going to bulk up. You're not going to get bulk up. Sorry. Not unless you're taking extracurriculars. <laughs> okay. No, I, I, I think that's perfect. It, it, it very much fits a, a workout that fits with shooting. I'm going to combine these two questions. One question was tips for maintaining a competitive mindset throughout a match. And then an additional question was, you know, what tips would you give to someone or advice would you give to someone that that has the skill but crumbs at a match? So someone that's you know not performing near the skill that they know they have at the match. Okay, guys. So um, <clears throat> instead of you know like regurgitating the normal mindset stuff or the Lanny Basham stuff, I I want to share something that this goes back to observing uh, probably the arguably the greatest Ipsic shooter to ever live. His name is Eric Rafael. So I said, who's that? <laughs> Eric Griffin, yeah, who is that? And I don't know if he teaches this, and I don't know if he even realizes it, but I guess the first time we squatted together would have been like the 98 Nationals, and um, I don't know that he won. You know, it was a couple of times before he started winning, and after that, he didn't look back. But I, I, it became very obvious that the point of this is that he detaches his emotions, Okay. So when somebody watch somebody the next time you're at a match when they load when they unload and show clear can you read their body language how that how that stage went absolutely right they deflate they bow their head they might they might cuss um, this emotion it works both ways positive and negative but negative emotion it brings about stress hormones and chemicals like cortisol and all that does is to reinforce to reinforce that you just had a negative stage. And also that emotion is really dealing with the past, right? Um, 
And on the other end, if you just totally go out there and smoke everybody by two seconds, you want to feel, you feel like, oh man, you know, you're, it feel you, you've get, you get like serotonin and dopamine and you just feel like, oh yeah, man, I'm happy. That was great. Be careful with that too. Stay more level. And it's almost like, um, it's almost like having a poker face, right? It's, it's almost like it it takes a lot of discipline, discipline to do this. Please try it just for, you know, and I saw Eric, like he would shoot, like, uh, let's say he had a no shoot. And if you couldn't see the targets, if you were watching a video with the sound off, you couldn't tell if he had a good stage or not. Mm. You couldn't tell how it was. And it was like robotic almost. And that kind of deals with both questions. You know, somebody who crumbles is usually caving into that, to that, uh, that negative emotion. Um, and we can talk about other things like, um, for sure, you need to trust and believe in your subconscious, in your training, because you want your subconscious to do as much as possible, right? Of the shooting, your subconscious is incredibly powerful. It can, it can literally process like 11 million bits per second. That's like a data rate. 11 million. They've quantified this. Your conscious mind can do 40 to like on the high end, 120 bits per second. Think about that, guys. What in comparison, it's it's ridiculous, right? Yeah. Um, but the the idea is that you have to believe and trust in your training, you have to believe in your subconscious so that you're not really consciously pushing, unless you have to, you know, obviously there's some strategy involved if you're five points down on the last stage, you might, you might need to change that up. Um, and then to add to that, I would add to that is the visualizing both process-based and outcome. Okay. So break it down to a clearly defined goal. What's my goal on the stage? Okay. Look at, we got an 18 yard a zone only with no shoots, maybe visualize the sights lifting off the center of the a zone of the shoot target several repetitions. And, um, those are some things that I would suggest. Try to try detaching your emotions. It's interesting. There, there is so much. It's just like, aha. And like you were just saying, it's like, how did I not say that? <laughs> yeah. I like that about Eric. Cause you know, when you like, when you watch Eric just shoot, he looks robotic. So for you to say that his mindset is very robotic, like that makes sense because he, he shoots and it's just like, how does the guy ever mess up? And he, and he rarely does, but maybe that's, maybe has a lot to do with his, his has as much to do with his mindset as it does his skill set. Yeah. I think you nailed it. I, I would love it if we could um, analyze and get a hold of him. <laughs> yeah. So analyze that guy because he's um, it's almost inhuman. Yeah, it is. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> this one's a little more off of the shooting and more just in sport in general. Does major power factors still have a future in USPSA? Oh man, I think it. I think it does. My my first my first impression is that it does. Um, and it's kind of funny because things like that aren't things that I really think about very often. It's just like that's a given. I'm going to have to deal with it. Um, and, um, man, that's a tough one. It seems like we do. One of the, one of the things that comes up sometimes, and I remember working for Remington, 
was I, they gave me a lot of, a lot of, uh, gruff about shooting a 40 cal guys. And, and we built this, uh, signature model, right? And they're like, why do you want it in 40? They didn't understand that this was a limited gun and I needed major power factor. Well, they're like, but nobody's buying 40. They're like, look, we have no orders for 40 and 40 ammo. And so why is your sport still using around that nobody wants? And it's, it's interesting. You know, they put me on the spot and no matter how many times guys, I had to explain to them how the 40 cal works in limited. They never got it. <laughs> I said, just trust me. Don't, don't release the limited gun in nine right now. Just keep it in 40. But um, that was probably the deepest I've ever thought about that question was what if, cause they would say, well, what if we stop making, it? you know, what the orders are literally so low. And then we, we released a uh, single stack 40. It was a really good gun mm-hmm. and, and, um, or, you know, decent out of the box for, for a low price and it didn't sell at all. I mean, the wholesalers and distributors were like, this is, we're not going to touch that. <laughs> I have dealers who will ask for like a 40 because they have, USPSA of the area. So like, what about a 40 single stack? It's like, how many do you want? It's like, oh, I could probably sell four or five. Like, yeah, it's not half. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Four or five. <laughs> yep. Exactly. So uh, your big goal in shooting was winning the world shoot. So what was next for you after winning the world shoot? Um, I think it was due to the timing of where I was in the army. And then my other goal of um, being the, like the face of a brand. So right then it was, it was, it was trying to figure out how, okay, time to graduate from the army and um, to locate that spot, which ultimately ended up being para. But to answer that question, I would say I started focusing on that at that point. And if I could go back guys, I would start focusing on the next world shoot. and i would start and and when i left the army i'd probably even go to just start my academy and um do what i love teach (laughs) but hindsight's 2020 right exactly you always know the right decision after you've made the wrong one (laughs) yeah exactly so i mean you you feel like that that really was maybe why you didn't win the next world shoot was because your your focus kind of let it's like you almost had this let i've i've won it now what's now? How does that benefit me versus how do I win the next one? Oh man, it's funny that you bring that up because well, yes, you're right. And I can remember coming back from the world shoot and my wife picking me up at the at the airport, and um, we'd also had two guys in the unit that year win gold medals in the Olympics. So it was a phenomenal. It was a record year wow. for the AMU. You had yeah, you had the first time that everyone that it's a world shoot. And two gold medals in shotgun. And I can remember talking about that. And I just, I almost felt like let down guys, like almost like, oh, that's a, that's done. What now? You know, like, this is all I dreamed about. Yeah. The amount of sacrifice, the untold amount of sacrifice, blood and sweat and the things I went through to get there. Uh, Everybody does, you know, I'm not any different, but. Um, and then all of a sudden, well, you've got it. What do you do now? It's almost surreal. Yeah. I, I had, so, so you were the first AMU shooter to win a world shoot as well? Yeah, I would think only so far. Yeah. I I had no idea. that That's uh, an accolade that should have been in your <laughs> introduction. I had no idea. Yeah. I think um, 
I think in some ways, uh, my accomplishment, um, the action shooting team in the AMU was sort of the redheaded stepchild for the longest time, you know, where, where they were looking at the Olympic sports as right. Those, these are our, our money makers. And, um, cause I remember, I can remember coming up for, um, soldier of the quarter and it was based on, um, wins and matches. And I'm going up against all the, you know, the rifle shooters, the, the bullseye guys, the shotgun guys. And, you know, and this was, and this was, you know, winning the world shoot that year. And you know what the accolade that they put up there, guys? Winning Georgia State. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, that's a big title. You should, I mean, we really should have led the show with, with that. I'm, I feel very remiss that we did not. Uh, how, could, how could we not put that first? That should have been the opener. It should have been. We need, we'll talk to our producer about that. He should have he should have keyed us in, and we'll we'll make sure that we have that corrected for the next time. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll just edit it. In. We'll we'll get rid of everything else and just be like, he was a Georgia State champion in some year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> two thousand eight Georgia State championship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh man. Okay, so th- this is a question that we always ask on the podcast, or we try to always ask because we're kind of split on the podcast panel. Do you believe in natural talent, specifically in relation to shooting? I do believe that people have innate abilities that favor aspects of shooting. For example, I'll, I'll see guys that are just take to speed right away. They may not be hitting the target, but they've got that. It's hard to put your, it's hard to put your finger on, but they've got that aggressive nature. That, that really transfers to really running the gun hard. Um, so, man, that's a good question. I feel that there, you know, there are certain, certain qualities that a person has naturally. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like KC, man, that guy winning steel challenge, like at 11, you know, yeah. it's gotta be a hand to eye coordination, motor skill there. That was for a typical, was he third? Maybe he's 13. I can't remember, but it was incredible. You know, there's gotta be something there that he has besides working hard and desire. So I think that's a really good one, but that would be my answer. <laughs> it's a good answer, Travis. It's <laughs> a great answer. All right. So the most important question of the entire podcast, and I know our listeners are going to know this. How long did it take Gus to learn shooter ready for his food bowl? Oh man, I love that. That is awesome. So, first of all, I have to give credit to my wife because she figured out how to do it. And I'll tell you a very, very powerful, the, the most insightful secret I could give away in our whole podcast snacks. Snacks. <laughs> snacks. <laughs> I think you did it in a couple days. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we. That was his natural skill, though. <laughs> That's definitely there's definitely some natural talent there. It's 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 like a, it's like a dog that can. It's too lazy to get out of bed, but man, they can hear a potato chip bag from three houses down. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Travis, we, we we thank you so much for uh, coming on and and giving us so much of your time here. Um, just real quick to wrap it up. Uh, 
where, uh, your your website, your uh, how people get to contact you for classes, and then uh, you know your your Instagram handle. Can you share those with us real quick for the listeners? That way they can check you out. Yes, please. So uh, my Instagram is just just Travis Tomasi, no space, and my website is travistomasi.com, and that's spelled T O M A S I E. And and I would love to hear from you from email. You can just uh, hit me up at Travis at travistomasi.com. And love to help you and love to work with you. And I'm ready to go. We, we appreciate you joining us. It's, it's been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks, Travis. Thank you, gentlemen. It's was, was an honor to be on your show. I appreciate it. Oh, stop recording, damn it.